we are talking about wisdom about work, wisdom at work, where our working lives uh, consume so much of our time and maybe more of our time than ever. And when our working lives are filled with discouragements, we may feel like we're taking home less than ever, uh, that we are working harder and gaining uh, uh, less. And uh, in the midst of this kind of atmosphere, <clears throat> and uh, throw economic uncertainty into that, we need wisdom about work, what work is for, why God designed us to work, and uh, how to persist in work. We're going to be talking about that this morning. Uh, <clears throat> we are talking about wisdom this morning in relation to the urge just to give it up and quit, just to drop our things and walk away from tasks that have become too painful, too difficult, too onerous, too unrewarding, that urge, at least emotionally, just to detach from what God has given us to do on a day-to-day basis and just kind of zombie-like go through the day without caring too much what happens as a result of our work, what happens through our work, what happens uh, to us uh, as a result of all of that. I just I sense more and more in our country uh, a, a spirit of lethargy. I'm going to pull out that old-fashioned word that speaks of slowness, weakness, grogginess, an inability to focus on the task at hand. And this lethargy is, is like we're just our brains and hearts are just addled by too much unfocused pleasure, too much stress, too much of all sorts of things so that when it comes right down to it and we have to focus on our work, we just don't want to. We don't have the will to do it. We don't have the, the drive to do it, the fire in the belly, as it were. And so... This morning, we're going to talk about this in relation to persistence. What does wisdom have to say? When you get up in the morning, you look at your tools and you sigh as if to say, really just don't want to be doing this right now. Rather just go home. Rather quit. What does wisdom have to say about persistence at that moment? You may be facing <clears throat> profound discouragement today in your work life. And when I talk about work life, uh, we understand we're not just talking about the job that you have or the career that you have. It may be in retirement. I know many people who are discouraged in retirement and looking for a reason to persist in the work that they know God has called them to do. Uh, it may be that you work in the home and uh, you don't bring home the bacon, you cook it and uh, make sure that everybody is, is well fed, the children are schooled. Uh, though that may be your extremely important defining role. And you may be 
extremely discouraged in that role today. So when it comes time that the alarm bell has summoned you to another day facing that discouragement, how do you persist? How do you keep going? What does wisdom have to say about this? Quickly, let's regather our thoughts about what wisdom is. Wisdom is a set of mental habits. We're gonna, we've called them virtues, intellectual virtues, like prudence and discernment are two that we keep mentioning. The habits of mind that look down the road at the challenges that are in the future and the opportunities that are in the future and looking down that road, asking this question, what do I need to do right now today to meet that challenge and make the most of that opportunity? And so prudence is that virtue, that habit of always looking down the road. Discernment, a mental habit of saying, there's a mixture in this situation of good and bad, and it's all appearing to be wrapped together. I need to untangle that. I need to separate the good from the bad so that I can make a right decision here that's going to honor the Lord and avoid getting entangled in my sins or other people's sins. So wisdom is saying, I can teach you. I, wisdom, read the Spirit of God. I can teach you how to persist, how to keep going amid tremendous discouragement if you build those mental habits, those virtues. Wisdom with those virtues shows us our role in a situation. I have this job to do in this situation right now. I'm a parent. I'm a boss. I'm an employee. I'm a student. And I have a job to do. I need to fulfill that role. In that role, I owe things to the people around me, the people above me, the people below me, the people down the line from me. I owe them stuff. And so wisdom comes into us and says, build up your mind with these virtues to understand where you are, what you're supposed to be doing, to understand your role and understand what you owe to the people around you. Now, uh, let me just pause once again and acknowledge how not politically correct this is. It is not fair for me as a pastor to talk about you or me or anyone owing anything to anybody because we're under grace, we're not saved by works, right? We don't owe anything to God. We don't owe anything to each other. Everything is just supposed to flow out of this wonderful, authentic sincerity and spontaneity. Except Monday morning, that sincerity and that spontaneity is pushing you in the other direction. Know this. The reason we are faltering in our work lives and the reason we don't have that sense of drive and motivation that we, and by we, I mean Americans, Californians, Christians at large, the reason we have this lethargy about our work lives is because we've decided that we don't owe anything to anyone. We live for ourselves. And once we've made that decision, I actually don't know why you would work 
except to please yourself. And when it stops pleasing yourself, I really don't know why you would keep going. So if you're hoping that I will make you laugh, make you cry, inspire you, leave you with some kind of gauzy, wonderful image that will keep you motivated to persist, you need to understand this. The Spirit of God is bringing us back to some basic things, basic obligations, things that we owe to each other. And he's doing this to snap us out of the lethargy we feel to light the fire again in our bellies to do what God has called us to do. We are saved by grace, not by works. But what is it that the grace of God empowers us to do? Be happy, satisfied, live that wonderful life, your best life now, as the book says. Is that what the grace of God is for? No. The grace of God is to stand us up, empowered, clean, guiltless, blameless before God, and motivated by his love and his kingdom to serve. That's what the grace of God is for. So we are not saved by works, but the grace of God empowers us to work. And that's the grace we badly need to recover. We need it today. We need it this week. So uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at one proverb very closely, Proverbs 14, 23. And then we're going to look at the example of the Lord Jesus persisting in toil. And then we'll ask some evaluation questions. Let's begin by looking at Proverbs 14, 23. It's very short. It is deceptively simple. In all toil, there is profit. But mere talk tends only to poverty. Simple contrast. In all toil. Think about that word. In all toil there is profit. But mere talk tends only to poverty. As I say, it uh, seems very simple on the surface. What I want to, to remind you is that every proverb is a little tiny puzzle. It's a riddle. And so there's something, there's some work we need to do on this proverb to get inside the mind of Solomon and into the wisdom of the Spirit of God so that he shows us something more uh, that he wants to say. These are not two statements. This is one statement. And the way you get to the deep truth of this proverb is by putting this puzzle together, solving this riddle. Let's look at the words very closely about profit. In all toil there is profit. Interesting word, toil. It's not used very often in the scriptures. In fact, it's only used about seven times throughout the entire Old Testament, this particular word for toil. 
And most of those times are in Proverbs, four of them to be exact, one of them right here. So that right away is a tip-off that Solomon is saying something more than what it might appear on the surface. He has picked a less familiar word to use in making this statement. So you say, what is unfamiliar about this word? What is unusual about it? Well, one of the places that this word is used, this noun for toil, is in Genesis 3.16. You may know this verse. This is after the man and woman have eaten from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were forbidden to eat. And having eaten of it, they have been confronted by God. They have admitted what they did, sort of. And then God says, here are the consequences of your action. You wanted to know good and evil? Well, you're going to know it. You're going to know it this way. He speaks uh, first to the serpent. He says, your head is going to be crushed. That's what you're going to know about this. Then he speaks to the woman. In 3.16 of Genesis, he says, in sorrow you will bear children. That's our word in toil, or to use uh, another word, labor. That's where this word comes from. Our word labor is directly linked to this. It's a sorrowful word. It's filled with pain, agony even. And it's a word that in its verb form, which still isn't used very often in the Old Testament, only about 17 times in the whole Bible. It means to pain someone, grieve someone. It means to give disquiet or unsettling thoughts. It it means to cause hurt in some forms of that word. And so what Solomon has done is he's taken a word that is associated with pain... And he said, in all toil caused by pain, suffering, in all toil that comes with doubt, anxiety, fear, difficulty, physical pain, emotional pain, in all of that kind of toil, there is profit. And you're saying, seriously? The word toil was bad enough. I mean, that's like digging ditches out when it's 104 degrees and you you don't want to be there and you're toiling away. That's what we think of. What Solomon is thinking of here is the pain involved in that. The physical pain of the sore muscles, the aching back, the uh, blisters on hands and feet, the pain you feel physically when you wake up the next morning after having done that. Um, this past spring, late spring, we put, um, we did our duty as Californians and made our yard drought-proof. We put the rocks in. So how often do I move rocks? Well, two years ago I moved rocks when we did the backyard, well, this year we we did the front yard. And I'm telling you, I toiled at that. And here I am complaining. It's this little postage stamp 
uh, you know, front yard. And we're just, uh, and I'm not even really moving the rocks. The, the guy with the truck did that. He, and he just dumped it. All I'm doing is spreading them around. And I feel like I'm going to die. <laughs> Malcolm says he helped. And he did. In fact, if it were not for Malcolm, I would have died. I, it just, I would be out there laying there right now. And the yard would be done. You know, the shovel would just... So thank you, Malcolm. You saved my life. <laughs> It's this kind of toil associated with pain that Solomon has in mind. And he's saying, in all toil, there is profit. You're saying, but I I don't want to toil. I don't want to work that way. Because I don't want the pain. Well, that's one major reason, isn't it, why a lot of things don't get done in life. Because we don't want the pain that we know it is going to take to do those things. And what Solomon is directing our attention to is the fact that pain in this world, this Genesis 3 world, this cursed and dying world where the weeds grow naturally and the harvest doesn't. In that world, all of the pain that goes into work brings profit. And so here we are in a society where our number one objective is to avoid pain and to get a job that doesn't bring pain. And when our work or our job or career does bring pain, does push us to the limit, when that does happen, we act like something really unfair is going down here. I'm hurting. That isn't right. And Solomon is saying, well, actually, it is. Because that's the world we're living in. And in order to live in that world we can either embrace the toil and see the purpose that God has for it, or we can let the weeds grow and take over. Those are our only options. So uh, he says, in all toil, there is profit. Profit is also an uncommon word. In fact, uh, most of the words in this uh, little proverb are not particularly common in the Old Testament vast majority of the uses of this word are in Proverbs, which should tell you something. This is something that Solomon kind of fastened on to. And it's just the concept of plenty, abundance. You got enough, more than enough. You are well supplied. What you have is ample. The refrigerator is full, and the freezer in the garage is full. And the, the bank account has money in it. In all painful, grievous toil, there is abundance. Let me tell you a story about myself. I wanted to be a journalist in college. And so I set myself uh, on a course toward Columbia University uh, School of Journalism 
and uh, we were going to go back there, and and I was going to pursue that kind of life, and I had a plan. My plan was this. There was a magazine called National Review based in New York City. comes out every other week, so about twice a month. Here was my plan. In order that I would be known to the editors of that magazine by the time I got to Columbia University in New York City for a master's program, I decided to write them an article and submit it for consideration as often as they published every two weeks. So when I was a senior in college, I decided that's what I'm going to do. That way, when I get into Columbia, which I didn't, when I get into Columbia and Bridget and I move to Manhattan, then I can knock on the door of National Review and they will know me. It's, it's a brilliant plan. Um, and uh, they knew me. I actually did this. That's the crazy thing. Um, so every two weeks, an article, 2,000, 3,000 words. That was in addition to all the work I did as a senior in college. And so what did that mean? That mean I, meant I had to put myself on a very rigorous schedule. And I had to break down how to write an article, and I had to invent a process where I could do that on that schedule and do it uh, with increasing levels of quality every time I sent them an article. And so uh, that's what I did. I invented a process for myself to do that work, and I started cranking out these articles. Every two weeks, I'd go down to the mailroom, mail them an article. And uh, true to form, would receive back a rejection letter. Every time. Send off an article, rejection. Send off another article, rejection. Over and over and over again. Do you know how hard this is? Uh, have you ever gotten a rejection after spending like many hours working on something only to have somebody say no don't need it thank you and then you do it again and they say no we don't need that either thank you and over and over and over again it was not my purpose to get accepted it was my purpose to be known and God had another purpose for that toil so I went through all of that. I still have all of these rejection letters. I get out and get them out and read them from time to time. Uh, about six months, <laughs> about six months into this thing, the editor—it may have been David Klinghoffer or somebody—finally said, "You are relentless," <laughs> and uh, and we can't use your article. And but funny things started to happen. They got more cordial. Sometimes they, they contained pointers. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I got maddeningly close to overshooting the mark and getting accepted. But we already just published an article just like this one, so we missed it. Just 
a squeaker. And so week after week after week of this toil and my whole plan was for nothing because I didn't get into Columbia and didn't go to Manhattan. In all toil, there is profit. Are you serious? I did all of that toil. I didn't profit at all. Well, what about that? I profited quite a bit. I did the thing that every writer has to do. Every writer wants to be a writer, but very few of those writers write. They have ideas. They have neat inspirations. They do all of these sorts of things, but they never actually sit down with the cursor going like this on a blank screen, and now you have to put something on that page. What I benefited from was a rigorous schedule and deadline and forcing myself to produce toward that deadline. Powerful. Changed my life. And it affects you today because the same methods that I had then for generating ideas, getting them down, and producing them on a deadline, which now my deadline is tighter because it's every week, that's what I do. Same exact process. Now, the Lord knew how that profit was going to come to me and how it was going to flow to you. I hope it's profitable. But I didn't know that yet. All I knew was I'm toiling and my great plan didn't work. See how this works? In all toil, there is profit. Even in that moment where you get the 13th rejection letter, Next phrase. Oh, I, I want to show you something else. Just I want you to observe back in chapter 14 and verse 4. Something about the messiness of work. This is just something I grabbed from the context of this proverb immediately in this chapter. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. So we all know what that's talking about, right? I don't have to spell that out, what, what is happening to that manger and the stables and all of those things. And what Solomon is saying is, if there's no work happening, there's no pain, there's no mess, but nothing's happening. And uh, it just strikes me, we want a life without toil. We want a life without that kind of pain, without diving into a problem, getting sore and blistered over it, and finishing the work. Beloved, God loves toil. He loves it, even under the curse. And we're going to see that in, a, in just a moment. Second phrase here is the contrasting line. Uh, back to verse 23. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. So you've got lots of ideas. You're very inspired 
you do lots of things to fill yourself up for more good ideas and you've got great plans and you, you're dreaming big dreams and there are things you're going to pursue and you're talking about it with your friends and you're blogging about it and this and that and, and you're just putting it out there. This is where I'm going and what's happening? Nada. Nothing. Nothing is happening. Mere talk leads to the opposite of plenty, abundance, profit. It leads to, very simple word, want, need. Remember uh, the, the old sense of the word want? It meant you had a need. There was something wanting, something lacking. You were impoverished in some way. What does the word want become today? Desire. I have a lack because my desire isn't met. That's not what the word meant originally. It meant this. It meant you had a lot of great ideas. You talked about them a lot, but never did anything about them, never put a process in place to get the toil done to make those ideas happen. And because you never did that, you ended up with Lack, want, poverty. So we take a couple of looks at this. I'll show you a similar statement. Go to Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5. Very similar statement. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. See that? It's deeply true may not be the specific plan of the diligent person that gets fulfilled, but it will lead to an abundance that the Lord provides. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. So you don't count the cost before you start the building. You don't do the prep work. You don't get things in the right order. You just rush in, jump in with both feet, and improvise. Uh, Proverbs is saying here, uh, you want poverty, talk a lot, improvise a lot, and poverty will come upon you like an armed man. will come upon you, need and want will basically waylay you in life. So um, I, I was listening to uh, um, guy named Vaynerchuk, uh, I forget his first name, he was being interviewed, he's one of these um, internet startup gurus, and he said something very interesting. He said, there is going to be a startup apocalypse coming, and I can't wait for it, he says, because you got all these guys out there, men and women, who have their dreams, they have their ideas, and they've started up their startup. But they don't have a business. And he got pretty animated about this. 
He said, what you have is a money machine and you want the, the, the valuation to come out this way so that you can sell it to Yahoo or maybe that's not such a good idea now. You can sell it to somebody and make your $500 million or whatever it is and then you walk away without having actually executed anything. You don't have a business. You've got a money machine and that is all going to collapse. There's going to come a startup Armageddon. We've already seen this. Saw it in the 2000 recession. And what he meant by that was, you got the ideas, you can sell your ideas. You're even that good. Maybe you're that articulate so that you can drive the valuation of your idea, whatever it is, up. You can inflate it that much. But at the end of the day, you have no structure for actually delivering on any of it. You have not toiled. That's what he's saying. And he's basically saying, I can't wait for that Armageddon to clear all of this dead weight out of the market. And he's right. And, you know, tech is not the only business that operates that way. Every new thing has its flim-flam artists who are good at talking up their ideas not so great on execution. In toil, there is profit, painful toil. So let's take these two lines. Let's put them together. And it comes out something like this. Solomon is saying, when you embrace the pain and persist through it, and you don't stop until the job is done, when you keep going to meet your obligations, even though they hurt, and it's hurting you every single day, every single hour, when you do that, there is profit. There is plenty. There is abundance on the other side of it. So the pain means something. But if you don't want the pain... You just want to talk about your great ideas, how inspired you are. You don't actually want to do any toil to make that happen. Poverty is ahead of you. What is this proverb about? It's about pain, not work. It's only about work tangentially. What it's really about is the one thing our society cannot tolerate, and that is physical and emotional pain. Now, if we think about that, it's a good way for us to approach our Savior and his example. Um, you may be looking at this with some dismay, thinking, Pastor, you're going to dive in and preach three chapters out of the book of Mark. We've never seen you do that in three months, much less however long you have here, which is not much and getting shorter. Well, we're just going to do a helicopter ride over Mark chapter 3, verses 20, uh, verse 20 through Mark chapter 5 and verse 20. And here's why. Because the sense is that all of this at least could have taken place on one single day. One day in the life of Jesus. And there are good reasons for thinking that all of these events took place on one day. We won't go into all of that. But it is laid out that way in the book of Mark. 
And I want us to just do a flyover of what this day for Jesus was like from breakfast till after dinner. How does this day go? How long is it? Does he take breaks? Does he get discouraged? Does he want to quit or does he persist? Well, we know the answers to all of that, but uh, let's, let's just do a flyover here. His day starts at breakfast with slander. Chapter 3, verse 20, and the ensuing story, if you just look at this, you'll see that Jesus' family is claiming that he's crazy. You're nuts. You are out of your mind, and we need to do an intervention, which they attempt at the end of chapter 3. The other slander is coming from the rulers of uh, uh, the, the Jewish temple and Jewish society. Scribes coming down from Jerusalem, and they have a political agenda. They've taken out some ads, uh, and they, these ads have dark music and grainy footage, and they're saying he's possessed by a demon, and that's how Jesus does all of his, of his miracles. He is doing all of his great works by satanic power. And so that ad is running in Galilee. That's the start of the day. I don't want that day. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to come, as Jesus did, into this world to save sinners and then have those sinners slander me for what I'm doing and even my own family slandering. And that's just getting things started. He has a whole debate with, with the, uh, the scribes um, in this, on this morning about whether Satan could even do this, and, um, and he ends up reversing the charge and says, in fact, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's your morning. How do you feel? Well, this is great. Talk about toil. I'm teaching the truth to these people. I've come to save these people. And this is what the religious leaders come back with? Are you kidding me? Why did I do this again? Lunch. After lunch, he deals with mass confusion. And in particular... Confusion among his disciples. Chapter 4 is an overview of Jesus' teaching and his use of parables or kind of expanded proverbs, larger riddles that he would throw out to thousands of people and basically say, if you get it, you get it. If you don't get it, work on it. Talk to you later. And he, he starts giving out all of these parables about his kingdom, the famous parable of the sower, is the first one up. and just give you a little flavor of this. Um, verse 3 of chapter 4. Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, and where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. Since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. 
and other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Get it or don't get it. He says that to a crowd of thousands of people gathered to hear him. And his disciples pull him aside and say, What are you doing? Why are you talking this way? They don't get that. We don't get it. You're wasting an opportunity here. I thought you wanted to beat back the religious authorities who are slandering you. Instead, you come out with this crazy stuff. Riddles. So he has to explain the parables to them. He has to explain the reasons to them why he uses parables. And then he goes out and gives some more. So that's after lunch. He deals with confusion. Now, if you've ever been in a teaching situation or a training situation, and you have the job of really challenging the people under your care, you really have to push them. How do you feel? after one hour of that kind of pushing and challenging. Wiped out. It's hard work. That's what Jesus does uh, after lunch. Deals with confusion. Uh, then there's dinner. I'm saying this. We are actually are not told whether he ate anything. We're just kind of assuming that he did. A lot of what they did was uh, grabbing some Taco Bell on the way or picking heads of grain in a field on the Sabbath because we ain't stopping for nothing, and so we're going to eat on the way. So it's, it's like that. But then after dinner, it's demons. He gets in the boat, crosses the Sea of Galilee, and it's evening time, and he is so tired. Look at chapter 4. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. He's out because he's tired. He has toiled all morning against slander. He has toiled all afternoon against confusion and slow-heartedness, hard-heartedness. And now a storm comes up, and they wake him up, uh, and he has to do a little miracle of calming the storm. And then they can get where they were, where they were going, which is chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to this country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He gets no rest after this storm, no more than steps out of the boat, when a man who has a legion of demons inside him runs up to him, and he now has to wrestle with this. You know this story. He casts the demons out of this man who is naked, out of his mind, can no longer be bound by anything. Uh, he can't even be bound by chains. He's living among the tombs and in the graveyards because no one will be around him. 
Jesus casts out those demons. The demons go into a herd of pigs. You remember this story? The pigs take off and run into the lake and drown. Okay. It's a great miracle. It's got it all. It's colorful, it's noisy, and you got pigs. What do you think the outcome of this is? You come to the end of a story like this, and you think, the people here just saw the power of God. They come up and they see this guy who they know was out of control. They see him clothed, seated, taking food in his right mind, and that scares them more than the pigs. And they tell him, get out of here. Just go. Just just leave. And so his miracle is met with rejection. After breakfast, it's slander. After lunch, it's confusion. And after dinner, it's demons. And get out of here. One day. Your days like this? Mine aren't nearly this bad. Not even close. And you know where Jesus was headed with all of this? He was headed to the cross. We don't think about this enough. That Jesus came to toil to bring us the gospel. And at the end of his toil, he died. And yet all of that pain is to our prophet and his. So what am I saying? I'm asking you today to rethink your view of pain and what pain is for. I'm not saying we should become martyrs and not take care of ourselves. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying this. Toil involves pain. And part of what we are called to do, no less in ministry than in our working lives, part of what we are called to do is to persist in toil even when it hurts and we wonder if anything is ever going to come of this. You know why we can do that? Because we have a Savior who did that. And his pain on our behalf worked. He is not just our example. He toiled to save us. If he did that for us, can I undergo toil and strife and pain in order to serve my family, serve you, serve this community? Yes, the answer is yes. Can I persist in that toil when that's what he did and he went through far worse than I will ever go through? Yes, the answer is yes. And why can I do it? Because of trust in God. I have seen him redeem toil hour by hour by hour. I have seen him redeem and reclaim that kind of pain and difficulty time and time again. In all toil, there is plenty. There is abundance. But mere talk leads only to poverty. Let's evaluate this. A um, couple of questions. just want you to pinpoint 
that zone in your life where you're tempted, just quit. Or maybe you already have. Um, and let me broaden this. This may not be your career, um, may not be your job, maybe your family, maybe your devotional life, maybe your ministry. Where are you tempted? Just to say, done, enough, checking out now. What is that zone in your life? Second question. As I commit right here and right now to getting back into that toil, not just physically, but emotionally too, committing to it, as I do that, what can I trust God for? Because he's in this. My Savior did this for me. If he's in this and he sympathizes with my weaknesses and if he is at the right hand of the throne of God and he is interceding there for me with all of his sympathy for what I am going through, if that is the case, what can I trust him for specifically? Maybe it's as simple as bills. Maybe it's for a softer heart in the midst of all the pain. Maybe it's for the strength, the ability, the grace to acknowledge, yes, I have these obligations and God has called me to fulfill them. I can trust him to help me do that. What can you trust God for? I would like you to be very specific about that today. I'd like you to do it again tomorrow. Same question. What is it today that I need to trust God for as I toil? Because nothing is going to get me through this except faith and trust in God. Okay, while we take the offering, I'll uh, see what questions we have here. Take a look at this. Okay, thank you. How does this idea that sweaty, slow work leads to profit mesh with the idea laid out in the following book, Ecclesiastes, that there is no profit under the sun, or are they simply different contexts? Good question. Because those of you who went through Ecclesiastes with uh, Paul Mathers here a couple of months ago know that the line that is repeated in that book is, it's all vanity. There's no profit in any of it. Uh, So how do we reconcile these two? The profit is in different senses. Um, First of all, um, the profit that the the man in Ecclesiastes is looking for is some kind of existential reward for having done something, bought something, owned something, known something. And that existential reward is this kind of thrill at being alive. And 
he comes to the conclusion in Ecclesiastes that existential reward doesn't exist in all of these things. I pursued all of that stuff. I, I built a kingdom. I worked hard. I had all kinds of women. I had every great luxury. I had all of these things. None of it profited me one bit in that sense of giving me that reward that I sought. It was all vanity. And so uh, when Ecclesiastes says it does not profit, it's, think, it's thinking of that measurement of profit that is vain, vanity, empty. Uh, it's basically, if, if you want to, to know what that um, measurement of, uh, that, that the Scriptures calls vain, what that is, just watch TV commercials. Uh, you, you're seeing someone so in the zone, so pleased with life, so happy, they can't stand it because they're driving a Buick or whatever. And it's, look, it's just not that great. Uh, it's, the meal just isn't that good. The vacation isn't that spectacular. It's just not and so Ecclesiastes is aimed at a false valuation of what is profitable and what is good. Proverbs, on the other hand, is saying, so in this fallen world, given that you're not going to get any existential reward from this, you may as well dive into the toil and get the reward that does come, which means you get plenty because you work. And even when your plans don't pan out, God is with you in that, and he takes your plans and gives you another kind of abundance that you didn't expect and will be even better. So there, we're talking about different systems of evaluating what is valuable and what the goals are in life. Excellent question. Okay, that seems to have sparked a number of inquiries here. Um, what can we do in the midst of toil when sleepiness kicks in? This is a great question. Um, uh, take it from me. Uh, just, just go to sleep. Uh, I, I can tell you what I'm going to be doing this afternoon. Um, I'm going to go home and drool over my lunch because I will be incoherent and tired. And then I will go to sleep for about an hour. And then I will get up and get back to work. And I will um, have a meeting later in the afternoon and we will have the evening service. And uh, But before that, I've got some research that I need to do. So... When sleepiness comes in there, which it does, sleep. Get the sleep that we need. It's not a sin. Um, let's see here. Uh, note here that Ecclesiastes' sense of profit equals meaning, man's search for meaning. That's a simpler way of saying existential reward, although I like the phrase existential reward. I just invented it right now. Uh, so, but anyway, it is that search for meaning. To toil is love 
or it's just a part of love? Very good question. Let me put it this way. I can tell my family that I love them till I'm blue in the face. I can ooh and awe over them and take pleasure in them uh, and I can affirm them and all of that stuff. I can say all of those things. But if at the end of the day I am not engaged enough to get through the pain and difficulty of work so that they are provided for, I'm really not sure what all of that mere talk is worth. Now, I understand that it, you can get too, uh, uh, you can get too much the other way. It's like the guy who loved his wife so much that he told her, uh, and you don't, that went right by you. You didn't even notice what I just said. Uh, men don't tell their wives they love them, right? So he loved her so much he told her? Okay. All right. I didn't say that very well, but it's my fault. But uh, you're tired and you need to go to sleep, perhaps. Uh, so, uh, but the reality is um, we need to engage with the pain of life and the pain of work as an expression of love for those who are down the line from us, under us, over us, dependent upon us. It is an expression of love. And add the words to that. Add them with tears and, and the groans from the pain if you have to. By all means, don't neglect the words. But let's not make empty professions of love for each other. Uh, it is very important. Okay, let me keep going here. Um, what about when toiling does not produce profit? It, it is a, a great question because very often we toil and our plans don't work out. The thing we were aiming at doesn't happen. And uh, in that case, we're looking for what the profit was that did come out of it. What in the experience made us stronger, taught us some things to work smarter, wiser? How did we see the Lord provide in the course of that experience? Not all toil profits in the way we want the profit to come, but it all does profit. The plans of the diligence of the diligent will surely lead to abundance, even in different forms. Um, let me uh, take a look at this here. Mere talk leads only to poverty. What might this look like? examples. Um, do a fair amount of counseling with... Okay, so I, I'm just to be all cards on the table here, I'm going to be very direct 
not to put too fine a point on it, I do a lot of counseling with young men who have dreams but have not yet embraced pain. And so what does it look like? It looks like year after year of making plans, applying to schools, taking classes, um, dreaming about careers. It looks like years and years of that that is actually just kind of aimless wandering. And so mere talk leads only to poverty looks like that. And what I would encourage you to do is snap to attention here. There, there needs to be a pilot light go on in your gut to say, done, enough. I'm going to focus on one thing, and I'm going to go after that, even though it's not going to provide me with the affirmation that I would like and it's not going to be the career that I would choose. I'm going to go after this because it is good for me to work through that pain, disappointment, toil. It is good for me to do that. That pilot light needs to go on so that mere talk doesn't lead to poverty. Here's what I think you'll see if you do that. I think you will see the Lord open up the opportunities of calling that you have long desired in the course of working through the toil you don't desire. I think the Lord is going to open up the, the usefulness, the opportunities, the good things that you're seeking as you work. And I think he's going to do that because he is faithful and he, he loves toil. And he sent his son to toil for us. So that's a little bit of what it looks like. Um, I'd be happy to talk further about that if, uh, if that is the case with you. We need to call a halt there, even though uh, questions are still coming in, but uh, we're over time. So uh, I can answer your questions uh, afterwards if you would like to do that. For now, let's pray once again. Lord Jesus, we ask you to pour out by the power of your Holy Spirit a tremendous work of grace in this room to light our spirits again to serve. We pray that for those who are discouraged that you would give them a profound sense of encouragement, health, strength, and joy in your name. Empower them to persist and endure. And for all of us, we pray that what we do would give you glory and honor in every way. And we ask you to do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.